Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is January 12th, 2017, and before introducing today's guest, I want to thank everyone who voted in the survey of your top episodes of 2016. I'll be announcing the results soon. My guest today is author and journalist Gary Taubes. Our topic is his latest book, The Case Against Sugar. Gary, welcome back to Econ Talk. Uh, thank you for having me. Now, this is an awkward interview for me. Uh, I really love peanut M&M's, chocolate chip ice cream, cherry pie, bear claws, and creamsicles are my dreamsicles. What's wrong with sugar? Well, uh, possibly everything, but um, except that it tastes great. The, uh, I just want to say in advance that the title I would have preferred for this book was Stealing Christmas, The Case Against Sugar. <laughs> I thought I should just get it out there. It's not like I'm not aware that I'm playing this Grinch role. And you know, my editors said keep it simple. So we ended up with just The Case Against Sugar. Uh, Okay, traditionally, historically, the argument's always been they're empty calories. So they add calories to the diet, and they don't have any vitamins, minerals, fiber, or anything else attached. So then you've got to get the vitamins, minerals, fibers from your other foods. So you consume more of them, and you end up over-consuming calories, and that's why you get fat. And there's a whole world of problems with that thinking, but nonetheless, that's been ubiquitous for a hundred, going on a hundred years now. The argument that I'm making in this book is that sugar is at least the prime suspect to be the cause of a condition called insulin resistance. And insulin resistance is the fundamental defect in type 2 diabetes, which is the common form of diabetes that associates with excess weight. And insulin resistance is so closely associated with obesity itself that you could at least hypothesize, as I do, that it's a fundamental cause of that. And obesity and diabetes are associated with an increased risk of every major chronic disease, including cancer and heart disease and dementia. And so if sugar causes insulin resistance, if it is the dietary trigger of this condition called insulin resistance, and it is a dietary trait. It's why we get fat. It's why we get diabetes. And it's at least uh, an exacerbator of an increaser of the risk of cancer and dementia. And excuse me, also it's why we get heart. The primary re- primary dietary trigger of heart disease as well. So there's definitely uh, a, a correlation, uh, as you've mentioned many times in the book, and you're very honest about it. Uh, between the rise of sugar consumption in Western countries and then uh, throughout the world and the prevalence of uh, many of these diseases. And that's one of the reasons to be uh, open to the possibility that sugar is the underlying cause. But let's talk about some of the magnitudes that we're we're dealing with here. How much sugar do we uh, consume? How much did we consume? Uh, so what are the kind of changes that we're talking about in, in sugar consumption? And, and also you might want to remind listeners of that 
we take sugar into our bodies in many different ways uh, in the modern world. Yeah. Well, and this is, there's so many misconceptions and so many issues that need clarification about sugar. I, you know, in the very first chapters, you may have noticed I grind the narrative to a halt by yep. saying, okay, let's, let's clear up some things first so we know what we're talking about. You know, the first thing is, what do we mean by sugar? Uh, and it's funny, even very informed commentators, even reviews of my books still seem to get this wrong, which clearly I didn't clarify it enough. But, you know, all carbohydrates, all chemicals that end in OS, the molecules that end in OSE are technically sugars. And when we talk about blood sugar, we're talking about glucose. Which, um, when we're talking, when I'm talking about sugars, what the FDA calls caloric sweeteners, we're talking about, you know, roughly 50-50 combinations of glucose or fructose and fructose. And it's the fructose that makes sugar sweet. Fructose is the sweetest of the carbohydrates. Um, and there are sugars with more or less fructose content, but what dominates American diets are Sucrose, which is the white stuff, or brown if you get it from Whole Foods that we put in our coffee, and uh, high fructose corn syrup. So we could call it, and there's a big debate about do you call these things added sugars, do you call them refined sugars, are they better or worse than the same sugars, you know, fructose, glucose, sucrose, when you get them naturally in fruits and potatoes, we could talk about that, or fruits and other vegetables. Honey. Honey, the point is refined sugar uh, it was very expensive, and it came out of uh, Indonesia 6,000 years ago. It spreads to India and China. The, the Indians and Chinese start refining it 2,000 years ago. Sugar cane into sugar itself. And it's not basically until the creation of the Caribbean colonies in the 17th century that sugar consumption really starts to become big business and uh, kind of drives empire. So it's the, the oil of, of that era. Um, with the Industrial Revolution, sugar refining starts to get cheaper and cheaper. And then with the creation of the sugar beet industry, so sugar cane can only be grown in tropical climates, limited uh, the amount, the availability. But once you've got sugar beets, you can grow it in temperate climates and well in Europe and North America and Russia. So second half of the 19th century, sugar consumption and distribution explodes. So these numbers too are confusing because your question is how much sugar do we consume? And the only even vaguely accurate number I could give you is how much sugar does the food industry make available for use by the public. So food availability numbers are charted pretty carefully. We don't really know how much of the sugar that ends up, you know, being used in beverages and cooked, used in baking actually gets consumed, how much gets transformed in cooking, how much gets thrown out. So the FDA, uh, the USDA has a formula to estimate that, that we could talk about. No, we can't. But. Go ahead. It's not, that, it's not that interesting, but it does make the point. Yeah. It does make the point yeah. that it, there's obviously some. It's a challenge to measure this with any precision. It's a challenge have- even to to talk about it. Sometimes I think the sugar industry tries to make it as challenging as possible. So they like to say for so the the, the, the 
baseline fact is 200 years ago we were consuming maybe we were maybe the the food industry was the sugar industry was making available about five pounds of sugar per capita per year and about the amount of sugar in western countries in west in the u.s and the uk um so you're talking about the sugar equivalent of a 12 ounce can of coke every six days by 1999 when this trend peaked, it was up to 155 pounds of sugar per person per day. So that's a, a modest increase, 30 fold <laughs> increase in 200 years. Um, you know, roughly 20% of our calories were coming from sugar. And I, one of the things that fascinated me in, in recreating the history of this is that, um, so prior to the 1840s, sugar is still so expensive that it's a, it's, it's a luxury. It's primarily a sort of head of the household thing. Um, 1840s, you get the, in this one decade, you've got the, the founding of the candy industry and the chocolate industry and the ice cream industry. So, you begin to mass produce again industrial the 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 industrial revolution you begin to mass produce sweets for children and women uh until then it's been exclusively men and then in the 1870s 1880s the soft drink industry begins to kick into uh into gear with Dr Pepper and Coca-Cola and then Pepsi <clears throat> and um with even chocolate candies, you know, the candies that I grew up on, you know, Snickers and Milky Ways and Mars bars, were all created from about 1890 to 1920, 1930. Um, and then there's still a couple of more industries to come. So the fruit juice industry begins to kick in in the 1930s. And it, it, if you think about it, it's not until we've got you know, in order to have to really saturate your diets with with sugary beverages, you need a way to keep them cool close by. So it's not about going to the soda fountain at the drugstore, which it was in the 1880s. By the 1930s, uh, refrigerators and ice boxes and vending machines start getting to the point that they're cheap enough to be in most American households, and that allows fruit juices now to. And Coke and Pepsi and the soda manufacturers start now, you know, putting Cokes and cartons and uh, large bottles so that you could keep it at home in your refrigerator and drink it all day long. And then finally, post-World War II, the sugary cereals come about. You know, the cereal industry was founded by health fanatics. Um, Post and Kellogg both ran sanatoriums for the sort of well-heeled dyspeptic and cereal was a way to help their digestion a high fiber treat so they all these industries had nutritionists who said we can't put sugar in the cereal right because we know sugar is bad for you but by 1848 i think it was post introduced sugar crisps the first one and the rest of the industry is like you see these internal struggles going on between the marketing people and the nutritionists and the marketing people just completely won out. They were saying, we can't survive unless we compete with sugar crisps. So one after another, the big cereal manufacturers started creating these sugary cereals, sugar-coated cereals. And by the 1960s, you've got sugary cereals that are like 50% sugar by calories. And the American breakfast has been transformed into this sort of low-fat version of dessert. And Americans are getting sugar 
you know, and the American kids are getting sugar from pretty much the moment they wake up to the moment they go to sleep. And I bet there was a large part of the population that, you know, didn't go two hours without a sugar hit. Yeah, you said, I think you said 1848 on sugar, Chris. <clears throat> well, maybe I misheard you, but 1948, 1948, right? 1948, yeah. 1948. So thinking about, 47. thinking about that story, uh, tragically or comically, I can't, or both, I think about my recent interview uh, with Sam Canoni's on Dreamland and the, the giving of heroin to young uh, teenagers to get them hooked uh, as a marketing technique. You know, here we are, I think about Willy Wonka, the, the romance that we have about childhood and candy, childhood and cake, childhood and cereal is um, it's really sweet, literally, but it's perhaps tragic. Um, every family, I think, has a story of, the, of some member of the family who tries to keep their kids from having uh, sugar. And then a grandparent takes the kid on an outing and stuffs him with some <laughs> thing that the kid goes nuts for, and, and love is all around, baby. But uh, well, this is yeah. I mean, it's it's the, the first the, after the prologue, the first chapter of the book is called "Drug or Food." It's addressing just this issue, and it starts with a thought experiment. Actually, in the early. Uh, versions. It said, how about a thought experiment? And I'm a big fan of thought experiments because I have this physics background. Um, when I'm feeling particularly pompous, I call them Gedanken experiments. Um, <laughs> well, that's because you, just... you have a very deep Weltanschauung. And so yeah. <laughs> as a result of your worldview, you need to have a Gedanken experiment. Go ahead, Gary. Sorry. Exactly. So the, the thought experiment is imagine any drug. We're just going to create a drug that can be taken by mouth, so it can be consumed orally, and it's got no apparent sort of immediate side effects, and it, it, its effect is just to make you moderately happy. And when you give it to kids, it makes children moderately happy. So you don't have to inject it, you don't have to snort it, there's not a lot of preparation, you can just buy this drug at the store and give it to your children, and if they're feeling pain, It'll relieve their pain. If they're feeling distressed, it'll distract them and it'll make them happy. And the question is, just with that concept, how long would it take until you get to a point where this drug becomes the way we communicate love, this drug becomes the way we reward success, every family celebration, every uh, holiday, every sock kids soccer game everything we do has to be you know sort of capped off with this one drug because it's so effective and it's so easy and if it's got side effects they don't show up in for 30 or 40 years and then by the time they do by this time this our experimental population has no way to link the side effects to the drug because everyone's consuming the drug and has been for 30 to 40 years. Just think um, how just think how different human history would be if it had been kale sickles as a sign <laughs> of, of uh, you know, you scored a goal. You, you deserve a kale sickle. Uh, you, know, you, got an funny, a, you got an A in math. Here's a kale the, sickle. Uh, the, the media started noticing that a lot of Americans were on a diet in the 1950s. And it's interesting why this happened. And so artificial sweeteners come along, uh, and post-World War II, 
they, the FDA is allowing cyclamates to be um, marketed to people with diabetes or who have some medical need for these drugs. They're kind of like marijuana now. Um, the uh, beginning in early 1950s, several manufacturers started making artificially sweetened sodas, soft drinks, and they realized that they have a market far beyond um, people with diabetes. So they, the industry starts growing you know, uh, the, wildly, and the media catches on that if they're selling diet sodas, clearly a lot of people are on diets, so they start doing articles about how Americans are now on diets, and their uh, polls are taken, Gallup polls about how many people. So I think it was 1958, maybe the New York Times Magazine has a cover story called the Great, uh, has this article called the Great American Diet Mania or something like that. And the point is, at the end of the article, it quotes some uh, professor from Yale saying, next thing you know, all Americans will be eating kale. <laughs> <laughs> like, this is how crazy it's going to get. Uh, prescience. <laughs> prescience. So yeah. let's talk a little bit about um, the evidence, which is, um, as you often admit in the book, uh, it's not perfect. It's highly suggestive to you, less suggestive to others. But let's just start with the basics on obesity, which is something of a review of topics you've discussed in your previous books than we've discussed in your previous episodes here. But the sugar industry's view has been, strangely enough, that, you know, hey, sure, it's just calories. Uh, calories are what make us fat. And people who eat sugar might even eat fewer calories elsewhere So uh, because it fills you up. And so it's really no big deal. It's not a health risk. It's just a pleasant um, way to take in some calories and in moderation, or even maybe some large amounts. It's not a big deal. What's What have we learned in the last, say, 100 years about what might be problematic about that claim? Well, so – and this claim is based on – the nutritional consensus. Uh, this is a point I have an op-ed in the Times that will probably have run by the time you air this, where I'm actually defending the sugar industry because I'm the business for the past 50, 60 years has been to pay advertisers and to pay researchers to remind nutritionists and obesity researchers that what they believe applies to sugar too. So the conventional thinking since the 1920 has been that we get fat because we consume more calories than we expend. And this is based on the science from 1870 to 1920, which may be a mistake to base such a fundamental understanding on 100-year-old science, but it is what it is. And so it's a caloric imbalance problem, as the NIH website will tell us. And as such, the only way foods can make you fat, the only effect they can have is through their caloric content or their digestible caloric content. And so sugar is no worse than any other food. It's, it's not, there's no such thing as a fattening food or reducing food. It's all about how much you eat, how many calories you consume and digest, not about what foods those calories come from or what macronutrients those calories come from. So the sugar industry's defense for all this period has been, look, you know, there's Nothing uniquely fattening about sugar. It's just the source of calories as any food is. And in fact, if you do an epidemiologic study and you follow people, this used to be true. I don't know if it still is, but if you follow 
uh, population to see who eats a lot of sugar and how much weight they gain, you'll find that lean people tend to eat more sugar than obese people. And this feeds into my criticisms of epidemiology over the years because you would expect people who are lean to drink sugary Coca-Cola because they can. They can. <laughs> <laughs> and the people who are easily, the ones who easily gain weight might drink Diet Coke because they trying to avoid the calories in the Coke because they gain weight so easily. And then you follow them and lo and behold, they gained weight anyway, but they were the ones drinking the diet soda. So you've got a reverse causality you have to deal with. Um, so this has been the sugar industry defense and the arguments I've brought up in my books because I happened to pay attention to the history. I was probably the first, I was the first journalist historian to actually bother to go back prior to World War II and recreate the history of thinking on clinical and research thinking on obesity prior to World War II, back when all major medical science was being done in Europe and the fields relative to obesity, uh, metabolism, nutrition, genetics, endocrinology were all sort of born and pioneered in Germany and Austria. And these clinical investigators who actually understood what endocrinology was or and even what genetics was, which most physicians didn't, um, had concluded that clearly obesity must be some kind of hormonal regulatory defect. And people don't gain 100 pounds, accumulate 100 pounds of excess fat because they eat too much. They do it because they're somehow they're body is telling them to accumulate fat, and that's going to be a hormonal enzymatic phenomena. This theory was lost with the war, um, and post-war obesity research was sort of recreated by young doctors, lean doctors and nutritionists at the Harvard School of Public Health, and they thought it was simple, and it was this caloric imbalance. It was basically gluttony and sloth. And by the 1960s, obesity research was dominated by psychologists and psychiatrists who had concluded that obesity is a behavioral defect in effect, that it's, you know, both eating too much and exercising too little are behaviors. And so they were trying to come up with ways to change the behavior of the fat person so that they would do what lean people seem to do naturally, which is not accumulate excess fat. And you know, eat less and exercise more. Um, the, it's almost, you know, I would still, it's hard to accept that this fundamental bedrock concept of obesity research is simply wrong. And I keep thinking of different ways to communicate this to people. So my latest attempt is to say, like, imagine if, you know, Russ, you were interviewing me about economics or finance or wealth accumulation instead of health and public health and we were talking about bill gates and you said why did bill gates get so rich and i said because he made more money than he spent I, you know you would be wondering why you had ever developed a relationship with me to begin with right i always if we were talking gary <clears throat> yes true and if we were talking about climate change and the question was why is the atmosphere heating up and i said because it's taking in more energy than it expends which it clearly is I basically insulted your intelligence. But in obesity, if you want to know why somebody's getting fat, then you tell them they take in more calories than they expend. 
And it's just almost incomprehensibly naive to me at this point. It's like clearly if someone's gaining weight, they're taking in more calories than they expend. I mean, that's the law. Basically what you're saying is if they're accumulating energy, they're accumulating energy. Well, the, the, economics, the economics analog for me, and the reason I, I find this, these topics so interesting beside the personal and intellectual content is that in economics, people say things like this all the time. They say things like, well, our national income is C plus I plus G. It's consumption plus investment plus government spending. So when government spends a dollar, income goes up by a dollar. I mean, that's obvious. And my thought is, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> where did the dollar come from? Does it not have any other side effects? Does it matter then? Can government just say, add an extra zero to the money, and then we're that much richer? What about prices? It, it generates a lot of questions. But but in the case of uh, – and, and by the way, the thing I learned, the deepest thing I learned from your book because of its honesty um, – is the same thing, for better or worse, and this may be my problem, it's the same thing, better or worse, I've learned about the economy. Boy, is the human body complicated. It's yeah. so challenging to parse out the independent effect of one even dramatically increasing variable called sugar because there's so many other things happening at the same time. And right, the but this gets, it's funny, and the, two points. One is I remember, I think, our very first interview – when we tried to decide which science was worse, you know, I think he said the reason economists like me is because I'm suggesting there's a, a more problematic field of research out there. Um, second point is we tend to get confused because the human body is so complex and because um, uh, it's so hard to tease out these different issues. People kind of lose sight of the fundamental question that we want to answer. And so they, one of the things you see written about all the time now is obesity and diabetes are multifactorial complex disorders. So there's this whole slew of things that are involved, you know, genetics and maybe sleep deprivation, the absence of sidewalks and Stress. maybe stress and antibiotics that are being used in our cattle that make the cattle fat and they get, get into the rainwater. And, and to me, this is an excuse for why we've completely failed to control these epidemics of obesity and diabetes that are worldwide. We could and should talk about that failure shortly. But the thing to remember is the question is this. We have these epidemics that are Worldwide, every population that transitions to the Western diet and lifestyle that goes through what's called a nutrition transition uh, eventually manifests these explosive increases in obesity and diabetes. Sometimes they do it quickly in the course of you know a couple generations. Sometimes it's a little delayed, but it always manifests itself. And you even see it. You see when people emigrate emigrate to the U.S. from like for instance, Asian populations, and they come to the U.S., and within two generations, they've got levels of obesity, diabetes, breast cancer, similar to any other Western population. So that's what we're trying to figure out. What's the cause of that, those epidemics? Okay, they're worldwide. We could begin to understand. We could rule out causes by looking for populations that, you know, would manifest the epidemics without uh, our suspected cause. Um, the answer to that is probably simple. So even though obesity and diabetes are considered multifactorial complex diseases, I mean, there are some people who think, well, the answer to that question is 
Western diets and lifestyles. It's the whole shebang. This is kind of, you know, and if it's foods, it's everything that goes into processed foods. Um, to me, that violates Occam's razor. Um, and because maybe because I grew up in the physics community, I have a devotion to Occam's razor that's more uh, fierce than it should be. But if you don't start with a simple hypothesis, you'll never make progress. So, you know, never multiply hypotheses beyond necessity is my favorite uh, variation on Occam's razor. Einstein's para paraphrase, which was the uh, hypothesis should be as simple as possible, but no simpler. Hmm. So if you start with the simplest possible hypothesis, then the conventional one is that people just eat too much and exercise too little. So they think diabetes Could is caused be. by obesity. Obesity is caused by caloric imbalance. And the hypothesis, pardon me? With the sloth part, too, that we just were yeah, sedentary. Yeah. Well, exactly. You get a more mechanized society. There's less manual labor is necessary. People don't walk as much because they have cars. This all goes with it. And so, But the, the end result is caloric imbalance. Um, the Yeah, and then my version of it, again, in my earlier books, I talked about the effect of you know, uh, refined grains and, and sugars in general, and now I'm just drilling down on sugar. I, it's funny, I have an email waiting for me from uh, somebody who went to my website and said, what about the carbs in beer? <laughs> and I want to say, well, clearly beer is fattening, and I could have wrote, written a book called The Case Against Beer, and that would be a different story, <laughs> but I don't, I don't kind know. I've already wrote that spell. book. You wrote that yeah. book before. It's called The Case Against yeah. Carbs, but uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a sort special of, um, chapter. Anyway, so that's, that's the, the, despite all the complexity of the human body, the, you know, when, when somebody gets cholera, the, it's a complex physiological response as well. And when somebody gets lung cancer from smoking cigarettes and only 10% of the people who smoke are going to get lung cancer, that's a complex physiological response. But we could identify the agent. The question, what is the agent has a simple answer and what I'm saying, the agent is sugar. You add sugar to every population. Whatever, whatever their baseline diet is, you are going to trigger eventually obesity and diabetes epidemics through this insulin resistance and maybe, you know, mechanism at least. And one of the reasons I'm not saying sugar and refined grains in the answer to this question is because we had populations Southeast Asia that ate a lot of refined grains and didn't get obese you know, they had vanishingly small levels of obesity and diabetes until you added sugar to their population's diets. So it could be that you're right. And I'm curious why, I mean, your book, you, you say in the very, I think the first page, maybe the first, certainly in the first few pages, that this book is the prosecution this is a prosecutor's one-sided case against sugar. Shouldn't there be a more nuanced – well, it's suggestive. And as you point out, you know, we don't have uh, large uh, randomized clinical trials on people who eat sugar for a long time and people who don't. And um, so the evidence is always going to be somewhat imperfect. Why are you so convinced? That it's sugar. And why aren't other people rallying to your cause if it's so mm. clear that it's the one thing? 
Well, again, remember the, well, let me backtrack. I do indeed. I say the, there's an author's note in the beginning saying, uh, yeah, that if this were a legal case, this book would be the prosecution's argument. In defense of my defensiveness, I've had people read the book and say, oh, no, a prosecutor would never be so open about the, true, true, the true, problems true. with the diet, with the, uh, with the evidence. So, um, yeah, I do believe that uh, anyone involved in a scientific endeavor has a, uh, an obligation to be as honest as humanly possible about the, what the can and cannot be interpreted from the evidence. So, the thing that has always gotten in the way and still gets in the way is this energy balance issue and calorie is a calorie issue. So, you know, clearly one of the reasons this book is being embraced, if it is, is because as a society, we're going after sugar now. Uh, the World Health Organization has set the relatively strict limits on what the amount of sugar they believe should be in a healthy diet, like 10% of calories, and they advise 5% for further benefit. The USDA recently, for the first time in history in their dietary guidelines, put a cap on the amount of sugar that they believe is healthy, uh, or the percentage of sugar calories, but it's still always based on this idea that sugar is an empty calorie. Um, this and one of the things I point out that I'm a little embarrassed I didn't notice in my earlier books is how much this is dependent on sort of the state of nutrition science of 100 to 150 years ago. So when you go back to read history of nutrition books, modern nutrition science basically dates to the late 1860s and the invention by German researchers of room size calorimeters. So these are devices that could measure the heat and energy expended by a, a, a human subject or a dog. And up until then, they knew how to measure the uh, energy content of a food by burning it in a small calorimeter and measuring the heat that comes out. But now they could actually measure the heat expended by humans. So you could measure the energy in and the energy out. And from 1870 to 1920, virtually all of nutrition science was calorimetry, measuring this energy content of foods and how much energy is expended by different types of, you know, kids and soldiers and sick people and healthy people. And then you could also do studies on vitamin mineral content, and they were beginning to realize that vitamin and mineral deficiency diseases and what, uh, the, what vitamins were causing them. So all of nutrition science was that. So when we talk about sugar being empty calories, it's empty of vitamins and minerals, which is the science of 1870, 1920, and it's calories, which is the science. And we couldn't actually understand the way sugar impacts our bodies differently than that. And so not until the, you know, the first the insulins discovered in 1921, um, 1920, I always forget, um, and growth hormones shortly thereafter and the science of endocrinology of hormones and hormone related diseases slowly begins to evolve like you know in the 1910s and 1920s we still called uh glands like ductless glands was a word for endocrinological organs um <clears throat> and nobody really understood and doctors didn't understand it at all i remember reading uh graham green's brother was the premier British endocrinologist, and he wrote a 
article in uh, the British Medical Journal, I think it was in 1950s, about how nobody understood, none, none of his physician colleagues even knew what insulin did or what it meant, and that to disregard it on the basis of ignorance was a bad idea. And then 1960, they finally have a technology available uh, called the radioimmunoassay by uh, Rosalind Yallow and Solomon Burson discovered it. And you could, for the first time in history, measure hormones in the bloodstream accurately. So you can now really figure out, you can actually feed people and see the hormonal responses in, you know, using this assay if you want to. And you could see, so... 1920, all we know is the calorie content of food. Now, 40 years later, we can see how the human body responds hormonally and enzymatically to foods, which is another effect they have independent of calories. But by this time, again, we've got this theory that it's all about calories. So as long as it's all about calories, getting back to the evidence to demonstrate that there's something unique about sugar. The case against sugar depends on demonstrating that it has effects independent, deleterious effects independent of its calories. That it's not just something we benignly overconsume and we get fat because we overconsume all calories. And that disassociation of the effects of sugar from the caloric content of the sugar is excruciatingly difficult to do in a laboratory, in an experimental setting. And what I've realized in the last five years of my life as as I've tried and and to some extent failed to uh, run a nutrition, or I co-founded a nutrition uh, science initiative, a nonprofit that was going to fund and facilitate studies that could resolve these issues. And I completely under, you know, I was like a hardy boy, you know, getting involved in a nonprofit. And the revelation was how excruciatingly difficult these experiments are, how easy they are to screw up. And if you don't have people who have been thinking deeply about the hypotheses, so if you take a whole world of people who for the past 50 years have thought a calorie is a calorie and obesity is a caloric imbalance problem, and you say, I want you to do an experiment in which you're going to test your fundamental belief based on this alternative hypothesis that a calorie is not a calorie and obesity is a hormonal regulatory disorder. And the way you're gonna have to do it is you're gonna have to disassociate the effect of the calories from the effect on the human body. Um, It takes an extraordinary amount of thought and dialogue and argument and critique and critique and critique before you're going to get an experiment that even begins to work to do this. And there's an absence of people who are capable of having those debates and the critiques because nobody has been thinking about it. Right, so that leaves that leaves you, it seems, <laughs> where... Yeah, which where... is a sort of... Now, so now if you had a choice... Remember one of your econo- economics colleagues at Yale called this the $100 bill on the sidewalk problem, mm-hmm. right? I mean, if what, what are you going to bet? You know, you got the entire nutrition obesity research community saying one thing, and you've got this journalist and a few friends, and there is a guy, you know, a professor at Harvard who agrees with us and also worked and said, you know, independently came to the same conclusions. 
who are you going to believe? I mean, if I were a betting man, who would I bet on? And I wake up at three or four in the morning thinking I must be a quack. This is crazy. But then I think back the whole energy balance idea. You know, again, let's say we were to, you know, we never get to talk about a money balance theory of wealth. Hmm. Yeah, you just got to make more money and spend less. That's how you get wealthy. Uh, so why, you know, then I, I can put a stake on a few things that suggest that I'm at least half not wrong. So that leaves you with the possibility of having to admit that you're not sure or that you don't know. <clears throat> For me, as an economist, the analogy is, well, we're in a depression. What do we do? If government spending isn't what gets us out, what do we do? And, you know, when I say, well, I'm not sure, but I don't think it's government spending, uh, that nobody wants to listen to you. <laughs> it's not a well, that's, it's, no, not, yeah. it's not a good selling point for getting uh, attention. Well, but even it, historically, whenever researchers said, look, we're not sure we, we need more research, they were perceived as being self-interested. Right, because need more research means need more funding. Yeah, for me, me to do me. the research, and for me, yeah. So you know, there's a lot of natural traps that occur when we get into these. That's why ideally you never screw up in the first place, because once you've screwed up, once a discipline or an institution has embraced a dogma, and this is one of the revelations um, that I'm still trying to wrap my head around. It's almost in virtually impossible. You know, we have this concept of a Kuhnian paradigm shifts, but um, once you get to the point where entire institutions are invested in a belief system, it might be beyond the point at which enough data will be allowed to accumulate to overturn that belief system. I mean, certainly that's the case in nutrition obesity research, if I'm right. And let me say right here, we could just assume that every sentence I say for the next remainder of the interview is preceded by the clause, if I'm right. <laughs> okay? Fair enough. But uh, I've, been I've, been putting going... it, I've been putting in front of it the whole time. So, <laughs> yeah. you know. Well, and it, it, it's got to be there, right? <laughs> because well, the odds, you know, historically the odds are people like me are always wrong. Not always. Ninety nine point nine. No, you got you got ulcers. You got ulcers. You got um, yeah. you got the uh, uh, tectonic plates. You got you got a bunch of cases where a yeah, lone crazy quack turned out to be a genius. So this could yeah. be one of those. I, but I, they tend to even those lone crazy quacks are tend to be in the field. Although yeah. you know you could argue if you look at the times when paradigms shift, they're usually driven by some, but they're often driven by people outside the field who have a different perspective or aren't trapped by the the belief system of the field. Um, I, I think um, I go with with Nassim Taleb here that that the field that we're talking about it's called nutrition or it's called epidemiology or it's called medicine, but it's really statistics. And most of the people who opine on these uh, issues are not experts. They are faux experts. It's the uh, Taleb's example is the – if you want to understand roulette, you don't talk to the carpenter who assembled the roulette wheel. And that person looks like the expert. He built the wheel. Come on. How could he not be the person who knows the most about it? So the people who – Given that we don't really understand enough about how the human body works, a lot of it is um, – it's not clear who the experts are. So I don't – I think the the question of who's inside the field and outside is is uh, now maybe not so pertinent. Well, that's, 
Yeah, well, it's even here, it's interesting, because one of the things uh, that you notice in the history, so what I'm basically saying, because of this belief in caloric balance and then gluttony and sloth, and like I said, by the 1960s, 1970s, when endocrinology was maturing as a science, was exploding in its maturation, the obesity research community was dominated by psychologists who were looking for behavioral explanations. And then, so they make no progress for 20 years. In 1993, I think it was, leptin is discovered. And now you've got an obesity gene, and suddenly, boom, the molecular biology uh, you know, industrial complex kicks in, and the field is swarmed by, it becomes a sub-discipline of molecular biology. And now you've got people looking for the effects of other obesity genes, and then the genomics and proteomics and everything else kicks in. In the meanwhile, basic endocrinology was left behind, okay? So this 20-year period of sort of fundamental medicine, like when you want to know why somebody's eight feet tall, you explain it by basic endocrinology from the 1920s to the 1970s. You don't bother getting into whether or not he's got some tall gene, right, or the microRNA that's involved in, in, in communicating between the insulin-like growth factor and his cells. I mean, it's not that relevant. It's like the guy's over-secreting growth hormone, do an MRI, find the tumor in his pituitary gland, get it out of there before he becomes nine feet tall. Um, and I'm saying that period, and when it came to obesity, was basically ignored. I mean, the people played around with the theory, and they didn't like the implications. The implications were that people like Robert Atkins was right. And so they sort of buried it. And we came out by 1980, we're discussing a science of excess fat accumulation, a disorder of excess fat accumulation, but the actual hormones and enzymes that regulate fat accumulation in the human body are considered irrelevant which is, again, one of those things where I say, if nothing else, it should be discussed, right? You should see it in the papers. When somebody writes a paper on the cause of obesity, they should at least be discussing why it's not a hormonal or enzymatic issue. And you get to the point, so last fall I was doing a BBC interview by Skype with uh, on a program where the host was a very charming geneticist from, I forget if it was Cambridge or Oxford, and he studied the genetics of obesity. And I said to him, what do you know what regulates the flow of fat into and out of fat cells? And he said, well, we don't know that. And I responded, no, you don't know that because you're a geneticist and you don't read endocrinology textbooks. But this was worked out in the 1960s. So you've even got people studying the experts. What did he say back to you? Did he say O oh, or did he say he they're said, wrong? Oh, that's an interesting. I mean, then I sent him, I actually sent him an email. I don't know, maybe it didn't get through, but after we got off the show, I sent him a, a long email um, it, with references and pages from uh, you know, the Williams textbook of endocrinology and Leninger's biochemistry saying, look, just go to adipocyte, look it up, and we know what the answer is. It's just not considered relevant to human obesity, which, like I said, is another one of these areas where I think I'm not entirely crazy. It's a comfort. You know? So um, let me, let's get personal here for a minute. Uh, we'll start with me, and then we'll turn to you. Um, I, uh, I, would, I would, in theory, like to weigh 25 pounds less. 10 would be great. 
25 would be ridiculous. Um, I weigh, oh, I probably weigh 40 pounds plus more than I did when I finished a marathon in 1976. So that's when I was the fittest I've ever been. Right. And uh, so I weigh more than I did then. By, uh, you continue running through this uh, period, I did not. No, no. I, I ran for another few years and I stopped. But I knew that whenever I wanted to lose weight, I could uh, cut back on carbohydrates. And it would be like magic. And uh, I got that from a, a great scientist, my mom, who, who <laughs> read the Atkins book. And it worked for her. So she told me about it. And I thought, I'll try it. And it works. So – in recent years, the only thing I have good to say about my weight is that it has not gone up. My attempts to keep it down have been successful, but it has not fallen. And what happens to me is the following. During the week, I pretend I don't eat carbs. It's not quite true. I tend to snack on things like an enormous bag of almonds or peanuts because I think, well, it's really kind of a low-carb food. Um, I eat cabbage and protein for lunch almost every day. I tend to skip breakfast. Uh, I keep the Jewish Sabbath. So when, when Friday night comes around, I eat a couple of challahs to, <laughs> to uh, balance my low-carb week. And uh, that, kind of ruins, that kind of ruins everything, as you might expect. And what I find is, is that if I say to myself, well, I'll just taste the bread. I don't need to eat four slices or six. I'll just have one cookie, not six, uh, on a Saturday afternoon. I find that very difficult to do. So coming back to the calorie in, calorie out thing, I certainly accept the idea that what I eat matters perhaps as much as the calories. But what I find is that when I eat what I know keeps my weight down, my body wants those other things and enjoys them so much so if I wanted to get the 35 to 45 pounds less that I'd like to weigh or the certainly the 10 or 15 that would be pleasant, I know what I have to do, but I find it very difficult to do. And, well, and I think that's the challenge most of us face. And I'm going to finish one more thing. This is my wife's question, which I have to promise to write ask because every time I push your ideas on her, she says, come on, it's just calories in, calories out. That's a fact. And I said, yeah, because my friend – who's a huge exercise guy and who's, who liked the China study. And so now he eats – he's a vegetarian and he eats a ton of carbs and he's thin as a rail. And she says, yeah, that's because he doesn't eat very much. It's not because he's not eating uh, – you know, it's not because he eats carbs. He's, he's, not, he's not gaining weight. It's because he doesn't eat very many carbs. What are your thoughts on that uh, potpourri of uh, personal life experience? Okay, so there's a lot of issues buried in there. One is help about, me, doctor. Help me. Yeah, the concepts of craving. One is oh, helping I, Gary, you. Oh, Gary, I got to tell you one more thing. I know there are listeners out there who heard your previous episode, took it to heart, and they write me, and they've lost forty pounds, and I think they've kept it off. So those of you out there, you can write in again and comment on this episode and give Gary some some uh, some comfort on this. Go ahead. Okay, so um, <clears throat> have to uh, okay. Um, again, multiple issues. Let's start basically with dietary advice. So the argument I've been making is that this is, you know, I had a nature commentary to this effect that said the headline was it's biology, not physics. Okay. So what we're worried about is biology. The question is, and I often, when I talk to researchers in my vain attempt to get them 
to either do science right or think like I do, even though I'm wrong. <laughs> um, I suggest that what they could do to their, uh, it would be an interesting uh, exercise for their students and themselves to create a theory of obesity de novo from the fat cells perspective. So the problem in obesity is your fat cells are accumulating too much fat. Most, much of the excess 40 pounds are in fat cells. You could argue that the, the part that isn't is the doing more damage. But we'll just assume it's, we're worried about the fat cell excess fat storage. So if I were a fat cell, I'm going to create, create a theory of obesity from here because the fat cell doesn't know how much you're eating or exercising. Okay, it's got no clue what your body's energy balance is. Um, so all it sees, it does see hormones. It sees, uh, it's, and it responds to those hormones. And that's the kind of stuff I, we know was worked out in the 1960s. So you're going to have to go to an endocrinology textbook. It sees or it responds to, you know, uh, blood sugar and to fats in the blood and to lipoproteins like LDL and HDL, it, it's got some central nervous system innervation of the fat cell, so it's going to respond to some nerve signals from the brain. And from what it sees, what would it take to accumulate excess fat? And the primary thing it would take would be to have insulin over some baseline level, because insulin's the hormone that's signaling for it to take up fat that, that signals these enzymes to upregulate on the membrane and other enzymes to downregulate inside the cell. So as long as the insulin is elevated, your fat cell will be in a, a milieu in which it's working to take up fat, um, whether or not you need those calories elsewhere in your body, okay? So from your position, so here's one of the the kickers, when you look at the dietary, there's two facts. When you look at the dietary triggers of insulin, um, so we secrete insulin more or less to the carbohydrates in our diet, also some to the protein because it's broken down into amino acids, which are converted into glucose, and we secrete it to that. We don't secrete <clears throat> insulin to the fat content of the diet. Um, fat is... Uh, picked up from your, your gut by particles called chylomicrons and taken off to your fat cells, and you don't need insulin to do that, so insulin's not involved. So the issue is now, um, <clears throat> if you're going to have a dietary way to get insulin as low as possible, you've got to replace the, get rid of the carbs, the protein should be, you know, the, enough but you don't want to go crazy with protein and then you replace the calories with fat. And so this is the idea that with Atkins, that you could eat as much as you want. Although even Atkins didn't, you know, fully understand the science, but the idea is you could eat as much as you want, but it should be more fat than protein. So you're eating very fatty foods. You're living on butter. I mean, as we're talking, the reason I'm awake today is because I've recently become addicted to bulletproof coffee and I have no idea if it's killing me or not, but it's got butter in it and you know, coconut butter. <laughs> Um, so mentally you have to accept that you can eat these high fat foods and they won't kill you. That's always been the, the challenge because we decided in the sixties, as we discussed, you know, five or seven years ago, whatever yeah, it was, previous that, episode. it's low fat diets, the way to go. Um, the second fact is when you actually look at insulin dynamics, and this was studied also in the seventies, eighties and nineties by a few research groups, um, there's a, a 
threshold. So as insulin levels come down in your bloodstream, and this is your um, the researchers would refer to the exquisite sensitivity of the fat cells to insulin. So long after your lean tissue, at levels far below that which your lean tissue is resistant to insulin, your fat cells are still very sensitive to it. So what happens is if you eat a carb-rich meal and you start to have the holla on Friday night, um, your blood sugar goes up and you secrete a lot of insulin starting to tell your uh, lean tissue basically to take up that blood sugar and oxidize it for fuel. It facilitates the getting the glucose into the cell. Um, eventually the lean tissue becomes resistant because it doesn't want more glucose, but you want the fat tissue to stay sensitive so it could, it could take care of the excess fuel that's floating around. As insulin levels come down, the fat tissue continues to be sensitive to insulin, so it continues to hold on to fat, and then there's a threshold. And below that threshold, basically, your fat tissue starts dumping the um, your fat that it's accumulated into the bloodstream, and your 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 cells will oxidize it for fuel, and you'll have this rush of energy. You'll convert some of it, maybe even into ketones, and you'll have this r rush of energy. Suddenly, your body's just burning this energy that it didn't have access to before. So the problem is, you got to get below the threshold. And if you're still accumulating fat, you're clearly above the threshold. I mean, this is you know, the journalist without a PhD or an MD giving you a simplistic concept of the science. This is how I understand it from, you know, it's 20 years or 15 years of research. So in the case, many people can just cut back on carbs and cut back on sugar and they'll lose weight. Relative, younger people can clearly do that. I was one of them when I was 20. But by the time I was 40, if I wanted to lose that weight, it required basically shifting over to something that's, you know, very much the Atkins diet. So you, you can't really cheat because cheating is enough to keep you above the threshold. Yeah, it's, that's where I'm at. You I'm know? above the threshold, which you sounds good, by the, the way, but it's not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So in this case, you want to be under it because when you're under, I mean, it's funny. I was looking at this. So again, the, what we're, Spark this research, this understanding of the hormonal regulation of fat accumulation was this discovery, this invention by Yellow and Burson of the radio immunoassay. And 60, by 65, they had made, you know, you get a brand new technology, you get a rush of discoveries, including, so they realized that uh, type 2 diabetics didn't suffer from insulin deficiency. This was an insulin resistance problem. They actually had too much insulin floating around. And they realized that obese people also had too much insulin and in I had excess insulin in their circulation. And by 1965, Yallow and Burson are saying that the release of fatty acids from fat cells, the quote was, requires only the negative stimulus of insulin deficiency. Okay. So if you want to get fat, so I had an argument recently, an email discussion where I got nowhere with a, one of the you know, uh, major figures in the obesity research community for the past 50 years. And uh, he had written an article co-authored with a woman whose husband runs my son's baseball to soccer team <laughs> in Oakland. Um, the, uh, anyway, in his article, he had said uh, negative energy balance is the synchronon of any successful weight loss diet. Negative energy balance being more energy out than in. 
And I was thinking, you know, the endocrinological view would have been 50 years ago and should have been that insulin deficiency is the synchronal of a successful weight loss diet. Uh, that's what Yalo and Burson would have said. If you want to get fat out of your fat cells, which is what a weight loss diet should do, what, the way to do it is to get insulin as low as possible. Not, And if you do, then you'll ex, expend more energy than you take in because you'll lose weight. And So you're not doing it. That's the answer. Um, if you were to do it in a concerted manner to get to the craving issue, Even back in the 1930s, a uh, great, uh, famous uh, biologist at uh, Hopkins named Kurt Richter had demonstrated that the animals sort of, they, when they have low-fat diets, they crave carbohydrates, and if you jack up the fat, they'll lose the carbohydrate craving. So I would argue that if you got under the threshold... And now this is the step that stops the entire medical community dead in its track. And you jack up the fat you're eating and you become somebody like me who thinks or at least dearly hopes that butter and bacon are health foods. You will lose the craving for the carbs and you won't want to eat it. It'll be much, much easier to avoid the challah on Friday night and... So I you just know, the need, cookie since, on occasion. So since the bacon doesn't work for me, I just need to go with more of the fatty pastrami is what you're saying with the challah. Yeah, yeah, sorry, <laughs> fatty pastrami. It's so, funny because I had this, the, the Center for Science and the Public Interest in um, Washington has been a sort of prime mover for the past 40 years. Of, uh, the, the fat is a killer, salt is a killer. So I've spent much of the past, my professional career, writing about nutrition, arguing that these people have done more than their advocacy for the American public. They've done far more damage than they've prevented, but they're also anti-sugar. So I, I recently mm. had lunch about a year ago with the, the very charming, charismatic, intelligent head of the Center for Science and Public Interest, this man, Mike Jacobson. And we actually had a very a wonderful um lunch together in Oakland and uh, when we left he was asking me why I wasn't supporting his organization more because you know we're both anti-sugar and why I wasn't supporting sugar regulation more and I said because after you're done taking away sugar you will then go after my pastrami yeah and I happen to believe pastrami is a health food so you know so that's that, that's my that's my next question actually because when you said you have a lonely life because there's a few researchers who are sympathetic to you although you did concede one of them was the head of the Harvard School of Public Health which is no, Harvard, not the head. a Harvard researcher which is usually Harvard that's a good thing to have the other people you have on your side uh, and this is makes me a little bit uncomfortable and I'm sure it makes some listeners uncomfortable so I want to get your response the other people you have on your side are the Puritans the people that. H.L. Mencken said he defined Puritanism as, as the uh, the haunting fear that someone somewhere is happy. Uh, and so when when some people hear, yeah, we need to get rid of sugar, they they hear, oh, this is just the latest nanny state yeah. cause. It was tobacco and then it was fat and now it's sugar. And they just want to take all the fun out of life and they're busybodies. Some of them are well-intentioned, maybe all of them, but they're also tangled up with this desire to run other people's lives, which is 
something that scares some of us. And I want you to reflect on that um, as you've sort of hinted at in that in that anecdote. Well, and again, I when I first got into this, I was fascinated. I think all my books are about on some level, good science and bad science. That's my obsession, how hard it is to do science right, how easy it is to screw up, to discover non-existent phenomena, to embrace uh, incorrect theories. That's the passion that drives me. It's still the book I would like to write, but should I ever do it, it will not sell nearly as well as books about diet do. Yeah, I want to write Um, that book too, by the way, Gary, and my agent says the same thing. What else are you thinking about? (laughs) <laughs> well, this is, yeah, I am literally, we're trying to tie it on to a, a two-book deal, so I just, just give me a little money so I can justify the time I'm going to put into that one. Uh, Otherwise, I'm going to, yeah, anyway. Sorry. <clears throat> excuse me. The, um, Go ahead. <laughs> I lost track of the question. Okay, so, so when I first got into this, it was because these friends of mine in the physics community said, look, you should look at the science in public health. It's terrible. And indeed it was. So everything I had learned from the physicists in the 80s when I was writing these books about the bad science and high energy physics and the cold fusion fiasco. So I learned that you've got to be rigorous and methodical and critical and skeptical and skeptical. And the first principle of science, as Feynman said, is you must not fool yourself and you're the easiest person to fool. And if you cut a single corner, sweep a single un comfortable fact under the rug, you're going to end up fooling yourself. And then I get into public health and it's just so hard to do it. You know, it's expensive and you've got these messy experimental subjects called humans and you've got these diseases that take 20, 30 years to manifest. And so the assumption was we're just going to, we're going to, all the things that the physicists had told me were required, we're going to treat as luxuries that we don't have, and we're going to assume that we could establish reliable knowledge without it, whereas my physicist friend said, you can't. My physics experience said, you can't. So this was what I was confronted with, and when I got into nutrition, I thought, okay, I'm just gonna, my first long investigation was on salt and blood pressure, and my second was on this dietary fat dogma that a low-fat diet's a healthy diet about two years of my life for the journal Science on those two articles, and I thought, I'm just going to knock down the food police. And I came out of it thinking, I can't believe I didn't eat an avocado or peanut butter in 15 years because of these people, and I was mad. (laughs) And, you know, I wanted to write a book on this, but I knew I couldn't get enough of an advance to prevent me from being in debt when I was done, and there was no self-help ask. I just wanted to you know, dig deeper because it was fascinating. And then I did this infamous New York Times Magazine cover story in 2002, what if it's all been a big fat lie? And in the process of doing that, I began to realize that there was an alternative hypothesis. So remember, we still have to explain these explosions in obesity and diabetes. I mean, these are, we're back to this question. I said we'd come back to this. They're pandemic. The numbers are unimaginable. In diabetes, from the mid-1950s to today, there's been a 750% increase in prevalence. Okay, if you go back to like the 1890s, as I do in the book, or the 1860s, and you trust the numbers, there's probably, it's probably been closer to like the uh, 2000% increase in prevalence. I mean, this is Shocking, and it's, these are diseases that are going to overwhelm healthcare systems worldwide because they increase, you know. So 
why aren't why don't we care? And in, in October, Margaret Chan, Director General of the World Health Organization, goes to Washington. There's an annual meeting of the National Academies of Science, which is dedicated to, I think it was called, reversing the dramatic 30-year increases in obesity and diabetes. And Chan says, she talks about this 400% increase from 1980 in diabetes worldwide in prevalence. So that's not absolute numbers. No, in her case, that was, I think it was both absolute numbers and prevalence. Um, and then she, she calls it these epidemics a slow motion disaster. And she admits that the public health community has completely failed to control them. So they've had 20 years now in which they've known of the existence of the obesity and diabetes epidemics, and they have made no inroads whatsoever in curbing them. And then she states that the chances of preventing a bad set, quote, keeping a bad situation from getting much worse, unquote, is virtually zero. So we have a situation in which the director general of the WHO is not only acknowledging that they've completely failed to curb these tragic and uh, slow motion disasters, but predicting future failure. And so, yeah, maybe I'm playing the Grinch role and I'm, this is the food police, but we have to understand what's causing this. And we are never going to control it without, I mean, again, maybe someday somebody will come up with a drug that works and the pharmaceutical industries can make trillions of dollars and we won't have to, but I'm pessimistic that any such drug is coming shortly and that when it comes, it won't have unfortunate and unforeseen side effects. So we got to understand it, and that's what I'm trying to do. And it's like unfortunate that, you know, the target happens to be something we all love so much. But if we didn't love so much, we never would have let it saturate our diets and our lives. We never would have consumed it so much, and this wouldn't have happened. So it's a, you know, we're stuck. Yeah, well, you know, I, your honesty about the data and we'll close on this, reminds me of when I passionately suggest we should try an alternative to the public school system. I think we should try to allow more competition. I don't, some people seem to think that means a business-based school system or a for-profit as opposed to a government system. And of course, all I really want is a non-governmental system. There are many ways to have a non-governmental system. It could be for-profit. It could be non-profit. It could be run by donations. Uh, it could be all kinds of different things that would happen if we didn't have the government trying to monopolize through its zero price system, the public school system, which distorts our choices of where we live, the price of housing. And I, I see it as a really bad thing. And when I say that, people say things like, well, what's the evidence that your system would be better? And I say, well, that's really hard to accumulate. There's hasn't been I don't think in the last two or 300 years, a wealthy-ish country that tried to have a private school system. Uh, we've had the occasional experiment. The results are ambiguous. And all I see is that we've now had three generations of inner city kids who don't get an education. That's what I see. And your answer is, well, we just need to do better. And that's not acceptable to me. I find that totally unacceptable. And their answer is, well, but where's the evidence that yours will be better than that? The answer is, well, I have some intuitions about it. it. They're imperfect. 
We can't measure the impact of private schooling uh, very effectively because it's totally tangled up with who goes and their parents and all that. It's a big, messy, empirical problem. But I think we ought to try something different, don't you think? And so I, I sympathize deeply, even though I love sugar, and, <laughs> and I find that while reading your book, it, it tempered some of the pleasure, unfortunately, that I get from sugar. But I do think uh, it's, an, it's a hypothesis that must be taken seriously. It's not an hypothesis to embrace as perhaps quixotically as you have, and you're aware of well. Fundamentally, I'm arguing that what I need, what we need, is to take it seriously. So the reason for writing this book, again, was not was to lay out the case as much as to prosecute it, so people could see what the stakes are and see what we should be taking seriously. I wanted to. What you've been telling me reminded me. I'm going to fall back on on one of everyone's favorite physicists who think, thought most deeply about these issues, uh, Richard Feynman, um, when he wasn't clowning around. Um, he's the person to read on how to think critically about things in this field. And he said, um, you know, science isn't about, often people say, like, they, he'd say, I'd be sitting on an airplane and somebody say, do you know, yeah, what about flying saucers? Are they real? And he'd say, no, they're not real. And they'd say, well, how do you know they're not real? How can you prove they're not real? And he'd say, well, science isn't about proving what's true or what's false. Mathematics is, science is, and science is about saying what's more or less likely. So what we're trying to do, you and I in different ways, is we're trying to establish what facts are highly likely to be true that we have to, you know, if the public school system, if the education of our students is uh, unacceptable on a population-wide level, then we could assume that the schools failed on a population-wide level, and we have to fix that. And we have to do everything we can to fix it. And here's a hypothesis that I believe is likely. Well, I don't even know if it's likely to fix it because I can't define it well enough, but a, a likely good way to approach it. But unless we accept the failure and are willing to reject what's happened up until now, we're never going to make progress. And, and you know, what I'm saying is, is uh, a little bit, so I'm saying that the most likely hypothesis in my mind, clearly this energy balance thinking is is just fatally flawed and we have to get rid of it. And the null hypothesis, the most likely hypothesis we have left is, you know, sugar and refined grains. And we, not only do we have to take it seriously, but we, and we, do we have to study it, but do we have to realize that that's, that's the hypothesis that we have to reject? Not that we have to support with our studies, but we have to refute with our studies. If and, that turns uh, out to be the case. Yeah. No, if people go through the trouble of doing the studies right, yeah. So, but most, again, science, all we can say is what's more or less likely, and that's always going to be a judgment call based on who's doing the assessment. Um, so our job is to get them to understand that our assessment is valuable enough, is thoughtful and balanced and valuable enough that it's got to be taken seriously. I'm going to step back even for that. I, I got a wonderful review in my book from Dan Engber of Slate in the Atlantic, and really thoughtful, and his criticisms were thoughtful. He, but there's one thing he said where, you know, he was asked this question whether I'm a zealot or a scientist, even though I'm a journalist. And I was thinking about it because actually both journalists and scientists should be 
should zealously pursue the truth, right? Yeah. Reliable knowledge, however you want to call it. That should be our job. It's one of my problems with the scientific community at large in this, these areas is that they don't zealously pursue the truth. I don't know what they zealously pursue, furthering their careers maybe, but it certainly isn't reliable knowledge. And so you're allowed to be both. And in fact, in certain ways, you should be both. Just depends what the zealotry is. Is it for a cause or is it for pursuit of, you know, reliable knowledge about something that's so critically important as in your, you know, the education of our children or the health of our children? My guest today has been Gary Taubes. Gary, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thank you, Russ. It's been great. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday. <laughs>